Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to tell you about Storyweaver Book Coaching. This is support for memoirists, thought leaders, and creative entrepreneurs at the beginning of their writing journey. You've got stories to tell. You feel like you've got a book inside of you. Before you can weave your visions into the chapters and birth this book into the world, you've got a lot of untangling and imagining to do. And that's where I come in. I can help you explore your personal experiences, get clear on your big ideas, and get clarity on what makes your book unique and compelling. I'm here as a sounding board and a thought partner. I'll ask tough questions and also give you a safe space to land. When it's time to start putting words on the page, I can be your trusted first set of eyes, and we can begin to craft your manuscript together. Learn more over at my website, marisagowdy.com. Let's talk and see if Storyweaver Book Coaching might be just what you're looking for. Episode 10, The Fenland Lanterns, an autumn story from East Anglia by Robin Watt. Our guest, Robin Watt, is an animist teacher and practitioner in the traditions of the British Isles. She offers programs for somatic nature connection and soul and ancestor tending in the field of the animist healing arts. After moving to Canada from the UK, Robin navigated the experience of grieving for her homeland while reclaiming the ancient animist cosmologies of her ancestry. Through this, she came into the work of guiding others who also long to reconnect to their ancestral wisdom traditions from far away. Robin's work offers immersive experiences in animist cosmology, ancestral recovery, and transformational nature connection. You can find her online at sacredearthgrove.com. The story Robin is going to tell us today is inspired by a story collected by Christy Hartziosis, found in the book Suffolk Fairy Tales. I am so excited to welcome Robin onto the Knotwork Storytelling Podcast. Robin, as is our way, we ask the story to speak for itself, and we'll begin there. So will you tell us a story? Yes, I'd love to. Thank you so much. So the story I wanted to bring today is set very close to where I grew up, which is an area of land that is known as the Fens, which is in East Anglia. And I grew up just north of Cambridgeshire, which is on the edge of the Fens. And there's many small towns and villages around there that I'm very familiar with. And I feel so comfortable in relating this story because I know this landscape so well. So this story is about the lamps or the lanterns or the lights or the will-o'-the-wisps that are so common in that area. I'm really excited to invoke the landscape of this place. So 
long ago, before your grandmother was born, perhaps even before her grandmother was born, there was a lad called Fred who lived in the fens. And it may have been in one of the villages such as Chatteris or Soham or Wisbeach. Doesn't matter exactly where it was, but it was on the edge of this Fenland landscape where it's very marshy, very flat, very boggy, very waterlogged with reeds and rushes as far as the eye can see. And Fred lived alone with his mum. And when he came of age, he took a job as a farmhand at a local farm. And each night at the end of his shift, he would have to make his way back across the marsh to get back to his mum. And his mum was old and he always made sure he was back home to tend to her at the end of his day. Now the farmer who he worked for really favored Fred and took a shine to him. And the other two stable boys that worked at the farm were a little jealous of this because they would notice that at the end of a hard day, it would be Fred who got invited in to sit at the kitchen table with the farmer and his family to have supper with them and a pint of ale, whereas they, the stable boys, did not. And they were a bit jealous of Fred. And as the months went on, their jealousy grew. Now, Fred, having grown up in the fens, had always heard about the stories of the lamps that came at night, more often in the autumn, that would rise out of the reeds and the rushes and the boggy marshland. These mysterious lights sometimes were bright white or perhaps tinged with blue, and they would glimmer. They were spherical in shape. Sometimes they might appear as a flame, other times, as a glowing ball. And these lights were not known to be kind to the local people. Most people associated them with danger and even with death. And it was understood that following these lights was very dangerous. There were many stories of people who were lured off their path into the darker areas of the marsh and lost forever, people never seen again. And there was a great distrust of these lights. So Fred, on his first night when he started his job at the farm, wasn't surprised to see the lights bobbing ahead in the marsh as he made his way home. But unlike everybody else, he didn't carry a distrust or a fear of them. And instead, he waved to them and cheerfully said, good night. And he made his way home to his mother safely. And ever after, the lights seemed to be a friend to Fred and they never lured him off his path or got him lost, but instead they guided him home safely. And he never had a problem in the way that the old stories had indicated. But still, this was another reason why the stable boys didn't trust Fred, didn't like Fred very much and it increased their jealousy of him a little. And so one night when Fred was sitting, having his supper and his ale with the farmer as usual, the stable boys hatched a plan. It's just not right that he gets all this attention, one of them said. Yeah, we need to teach him a lesson, said the other. And they talked about it a little more 
and they decided what they were going to do. And so the next night, when Fred again was taking his leave from the supper table, the stable boys crept out to the barn. One of them grabbed a lantern, a bright lantern, and the other one grabbed a rushlight that was hanging on the wall of the barn. And of course, back then, rushlights were very common, given that there were so many reeds growing all around the area, and people would take these reeds, they would strip one half of the side of the reed away, leaving the thick pith in the center, and they would dip this in grease or fat, and it would burn slowly. It didn't give off a bright light, but still enough for people to do their work in the evening and have a little bit of light in the dark, especially in the winter months. So the two stable boys crept out and they walked towards the marsh and they waded into the boggy water a little way and they found a place to crouch down and hide with their lights, just waiting for Fred to appear. And soon he did come along, Fred. He was whistling and he was carrying his own lantern high up. And as he walked, other lights started to appear at knee height, just a little way ahead of him. The lights were bobbing and Fred was cheerfully following them along as he whistled. Here he is, said one of the stable boys. Now's our chance. The stable boy with the lantern started trudging out into the marshy depths. He trudged out feeling the water come up to his knees. And by now it was very cold and it was very dark and the stars were coming out. And he started to call out to Fred, help, help, please help me. Fred seemed to stop and look around, but he didn't move towards the stable boy. And instead, kept slowly walking on his path back to his house. The stable boy called again, help, help. And the stable boy noticed at this moment that many other lights had started to appear. Spheres glowing white, bobbing all around him just above the water level. Some lights blue. And he started to feel a little uneasy. He called again, help, trying to get Fred's attention. And then from behind him, further back into the deep marshy waters, he heard a deeper voice, help, help. That must be him, the stable boy thought, because at this point, he couldn't tell who was Fred, which one was his friend, where all the lights were coming from. And he thought, excited to himself, We've got him now. And he called out to the other stable boy, hey, come over here, we've got him. The other stable boy came to join him and the two of them with their lantern and their rushlight started to go towards the voice that had come from behind them. Help, it called again, help. They started walking towards the light, believing it was Fred. Many other lights were dancing around them. As they got closer to the bright light where the voice was coming from, they suddenly could see the shape of a face behind it. And it was a big white face glowing 
in the light that it was holding. And they suddenly realized that this was not Fred's face, nor any face that they recognized. They started to get very scared. And this light came towards them, the face behind it becoming clearer and clearer. And the light suddenly became so bright that it blinded them and they dropped their lantern and their rushlight into the marsh, extinguishing the light that they were carrying. They were terrified. They started thrashing around in the marsh, trying to get out of there, trying to escape from all the lights. And all around them now, they could see glowing balls, hundreds of them, and other voices, voices of men, women, and children, all calling, help, 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 coming from all directions. They didn't know what was happening. Floundering around, they only got themselves mired in deeper water. It was coming up to their waist, to their chests. They couldn't understand how to get out. They were lost in the marsh, surrounded by the voices and the lights. And then suddenly, they heard footsteps, heavy footsteps, splashing towards them. The lights around them drew away and formed a circle. And there they saw Fred standing over them, holding up his lantern, grinning at them. And he said, all right, boys, what are you doing out so late at night in the marsh? Now, they were too shocked to say a thing. Their mouths, their eyes were round with surprise. And they didn't say a word to Fred. Fred said, are you looking for your way home? And they nodded, stammering and stuttering. Yes, yes, yes. We want to get home. All right. Fred whistled. And in not too long, the farmer's dogs appeared, splashing into the marsh water. And the scared stable boys grabbed onto the collars of the dogs. And the dogs helped them find their way to the edge of the marsh. Now those dogs will take you home safely, called Fred and I'll see you tomorrow. And the dogs did indeed lead the stable boys home safely. And Fred, of course, carried on his way back home to his mum with the lights guiding his way. And of course, the stable boys never played a trick like that again. Oh, Robin, that was delightful and chilling <laughs> and that combination of disorientation and goodness and the right kind of spooky thank you for that story <laughs> oh. my pleasure yes thank you what i noticed first was the way nick was with early in your telling of the tale was that you gave us a sense of the land and the place and you also invoked the ancestors you invoked mm -hmm your own, and ours as the listener. And knowing a little bit about your work, that just seems so core to who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I'm somehow called to begin there. I think we'll talk about Fred. We'll get to him and his eternal goodness and all that the stable boys <laughs> represented. But let's start yeah. with the land and the ancestors. Yes. Yes. So when I was thinking of a story to bring 
to the podcast, I knew that I really wanted to connect in with a place that I'm very familiar with, where I've spent a lot of time and where my family is from. And that is East Anglia in England. So a lot of my family are from Suffolk and Norfolk, and I grew up very close to there in Cambridgeshire. And I am just so familiar with that landscape personally, having grown up there. But it also goes back hundreds and hundreds of years for me, because especially on my mother's side, my grandparents, great grandparents, great great grandparents are all from that area. And I just feel such a deep connection to that place because I know that my family's been living and working and walking on those lands for centuries. And being able to connect in with some of those mythic tales of that place where I have such a deep connection, it's really nourishing for me. Really brings me into that sense of lineage um, and deep connection across time and really connected to place. So it's really exactly why I wanted to bring that story. And I'm glad that you picked up on that. Yes. And you speaking as a person from England, myself being from the United States by way of Canada. I know you're, you now are living in Canada. We have these, these kind of weavings of how our stories interweave, but also just that sense of, and I know you know this well, folks who've grown up in North America who may have European heritage, maybe from the British Isles, from Ireland, from that corner of the world, it's always, I think, at least I can speak for myself, it's both a beautiful and a difficult dance to have the land beneath my feet that I've grown to know be different than my grandmother's and then going back those five, seven more generations. Yes, yes. I actually see it as a bit of a, a wounding, a wound mm. that people carry often. Yeah. And for myself, having emigrated to Canada at the age of 20, I actually experienced that wound later on in my life, but I always feel like I never would have appreciated that ancestral connection as much if I hadn't have left. Mm. And in a way, I feel like that wound is, is actually a gift in that way, because I really went back into my traditions and my ancestry a lot more after I left the Isle, because I had such a sense of loss and grief and I later on had my children and I wanted to be able to pass ancestral connection and knowledge of place onto them. And I just don't know if I ever would have done that in the same way if I had stayed. And so in some ways being disconnected from land is a gift because when we're walking with that grief and that disconnection, we're much more likely to make the effort to reconnect. Mm. And I see that really all the time. So in the work that I do, most of my students or my clients are people who don't live in the British Isles, maybe have never been there, maybe will never get to go there. And it's working with that wounding, mm -hmm. which is very present. Yeah. Yeah. As I've learned in my healing tradition, conflict is medicine. Right. And it's yeah. that opportunity that when you have that friction and that reason to pay attention, the doors open. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I'm so excited by your work with animism and that whole world of things. And that really, I see it come through in the story. And that way that 
Well, as I'm hearing you, Fred has this connection with nature. He knows that the entire world around him has a sentience, has an aliveness. And I love how you pit him really against, because conflict is medicine, the stable boys. And that's such a, a, that word itself is like, oh, right, it's taking the wild horses and making sure they stay in the correct boxes. (laughs) And how you set those two against each other, that nature, civilization, wildness, domesticity, that just got me right in my core. Because I think that's something that so many of us are struggling with and awakening to. Yes. So this is actually a a story that was recorded in the 1920s. I adapted it a little for my purposes, Mm -hmm. but it's basically the same story as this one that was recorded. And what I find really fascinating about it is that because Fred approaches the lights without fear and without distrust, he's kind to them. Mm -hmm. You know, he greets them in a kind way. He doesn't try to, you know, take over their space. He's not trying to eradicate them. He's just walking among them. And I think it's a real teaching that his approach in that way leads him into a very deep relationship with the lights in a way that the people who are fearful or distrusting will never get to experience. And I love that part of the story. And I, I do feel like it's a teaching that's in the story for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. All the way down that he knows to call the dogs, that they'll bring you home. Again, trust another, someone from the more than human world who can take you where you need to go because I don't think it would have occurred to the stable boys. They were thinking without a light that I lit back at the house I'm lost. Yes. I was surprised by that when I first came across the story as well, that the dogs came in. Mm. But I agree with you that the animals are the helpers and the guides. Yes. So let's explore that a little bit more. And this idea of, well, animals takes me to animism. And maybe you can help us understand how those words are or are not related. But I'm so fascinated by this whole concept. And I know you've written recently that you keep finding that it's something that people know in their bones. They have this concept of this is the way the world works well before the word animism may find its way into their lives. Right. I do feel that that is the case for many people that I've spoken with. And it's really prevalent in all of our old stories from the Isles as well. Again, without using the word animism specifically, the stories are just full of references to nature being alive, to having sentience, to having influence and impact on our lives, and to being very interested in us. It's not that the other world is out there and is trying to ignore us. It actually really comes into our lives and wants to interact with us and get to know us, sometimes in not so good ways, sometimes in beneficial ways. But there is this very active relationship that's going on that we can really trace back thousands of years in our stories and traditions and in the ritual landscape of the Isles. And I find that very valuable in my life to remember that. And really at its core, the way that I understand animism is that it tells us that the living world is sentient, that it's aware, that it has intelligence and that it can communicate with us. Not in the same way perhaps as we communicate with each other, 
but in its own way. And again, this isn't a new understanding of the world. This is ancient. And with the lights, I love the story of the lights. This story is told in some way all over the Isles. There's many different words for the lights and all over Europe, actually. But it's so integral to the landscape and the understanding that you can be walking through the fens at night and these intelligent, ephemeral balls of light are all around you and that they're wanting to interact with you in some way, maybe to lure you to your death or maybe to guide you home. But it's in the relationship about how that goes. And for me, it's very animistic. And those stories are all over the aisles. And again, it's one of those things that I like to bring into my life. And remember, these are ancient teachings about the nature of reality and the nature of the land. And of course, most of us have those lights only from the movie Brave. So I love that you're reminding <laughs> us that the mass entertainment we have that may capture our imagination, this was not created by the minds of Disney. It was created by an entire landscape and a culture. Every time I discover that, it's like, okay, what if instead of thinking, Ugh, Disney ripped off this amazing piece of folklore <laughs> and instead said, oh, look, now our children and us have this gateway in so that when we hear, quote unquote, a real story of the Will-O-The-Wisps, we can say, all right, I know where I'm standing. Take me deeper. Yes. My daughter loves that movie, and that was her first contact with the wisps. Mm. That she she calls them that, the wisps, right. and she 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 was fascinated with that idea of the wisps. And yeah, I'm actually quite grateful to Disney for that because, as you say, it is a doorway into the older teachings. And I've been able to tell her these stories more recently. She's only four, so you know, <laughs> she's just getting to know all of it. And she's really interested in hearing the story. She always wants me to tell it again mm. uh, because she's got that visual of the wisps right. from the movie. Right. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. I do. I yeah. know Disney isn't perfect, but I'm grateful for that connection that my daughter has, that concept of them. Right. And it reminds us that stories are meant to evolve and be played with in the time that we're in because we can't go back and crystallize a story from modern attention spans need modern food, as well as ancient inspiration in those spaces beyond words. And what if it's okay to adjust ancient stories for modern appetites and modern abilities so that we keep these stories breathing and growing and changing and allowing that to happen? Because when we try to crystallize them back in the past, that's when we have the most chance of losing them, I think. They get dried out and too old, and they don't keep capturing us and weaving us into the future. I totally agree with that. And it's something that comes up a lot for me in the work that I do, in that we can't go back and recreate a fragmented and in often lost past. Even if we wanted to, that door is really closed to us. We have to exist in the reality we're in. And integrating the stories into the modern world is absolutely a necessary part of the work. And also, I think it's an ancestral teaching to do that because that's what people have always done. When you look at the, the history of the Isles in particular, because that's what I know about, but I'm sure it's all over the world, things change 
people adapt. Societies start using different things. We see, you know, the we see the Stone Age changing to the Metal Ages. Mm -hmm. This is what people have always done. And I don't think our ancestors would expect us to stay in a kind of static version of something when the world has changed so much. And so for me, it very much is a process of seeing how we can integrate these ancient tales, ancient wisdom into the modern context that we're in. I think that's really all we can do. And when we really accept that and embrace it, it's actually a very rich practice mm -hmm. because the world we're in today has very particular challenges, very particular context especially with the environmental crisis and many other things that are going on. And that ancient wisdom that can be found in old stories, that's actually very useful for the modern context. And I think that dance between bringing the old into the new is really where we find the richness of, of the practice. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of what I just read in one of your Instagram posts and how you reminded us that the stone circles and these amazing you know, megalithic stones that we so adore and see as so iconically Celtic are in fact from a pre-Celtic time. And we can only assume that what we do know of our Celtic ancestors, they integrated these stones into their lives and work, but they didn't make them. Who knows what they even knew and how correct, correct, quote unquote, it would have been based on their initial construction and all the beliefs that surrounded them and gave them such importance. Absolutely. Yeah, the megaliths, the stone circles, they were created thousands of years before anything that we know as Celtic came on the scene. And really, we don't know how much those more ancient societies influenced the Celtic societies that came later. Mm -hmm. It's possible that they had a big influence on the Celtic societies, but we don't know. It could have right. been completely different cultures. Right. But again, yeah, the insular Celts would have been living among those ancient monuments and they would have been making sense of them in the way that they did mm -hmm. however that was right. but i think those places have always been sacred in some way but their meaning and the way people have interacted with them has changed dramatically across you know really the past six thousand years or so so yeah yeah, yeah. to loop back and tie together a couple of ideas that you've covered for us already when you mentioned the environmental crisis and knowing that that's, I mean, front of mind for all of us, except when we can't have it be front of mind because it's making us too upset and full of anxiety. At the same time, when you mention animism as being that desire of the earth and allowing ourselves to say, see, the earth has desires, there's hope in animism that there is this, an ability to, to partner and call in our shared desire to maintain life, to help life evolve rather than dissolve. When I hear you say that, that really hits me in the heart. It really resonates with me. It's so true because when we come into an animistic understanding of the nature of the earth, of the universe, which is that all beings are sentient in some way and have awareness in some way, that means that we necessarily change the way we interact with the world. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're not so comfortable or comfortable at all with the immense amount of resource extraction that's going on or the huge amounts of pollution that are kind of carelessly dumped around all the time. Mm -hmm. When we understand that the world is living and alive, we bring it into our moral sphere. We start according other beings' rights. 
in the way that we do for ourselves, I think we have a long way to go here because even with other animals, we don't really accord them rights most of the time, in the, certainly not in the same way that we do with each other. Mm. And that's not the case for most of human history. And the fact that we've lost that worldview has caused a lot of harm and it's put us in a really dangerous situation. So I think it's very important to come back to that understanding. And again, most people do have an inkling of that. People that spend time in nature, that have pets, they do have a deep love of these other beings and an understanding that these beings have awareness, that they have a life, that they deserve to be included mm -hmm. in the moral sphere and treated as such. I think it's critical that we come back to that. And I think so many of us do feel that but we don't have a language for it or a, a cohesive way of understanding it because, you know, modern industrial culture just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of work to do to come back to it, I think. Mm -hmm. Working harder to be like Fred, for whom everything seemed a good bit easier, because he didn't question. He went, I mean, not to say he didn't question in a way that he wasn't inquisitive or he wasn't aware. He was deeply aware, but he allowed everything in his environment to exist and be part of the landscape rather than that constant othering, which is what we do when we allow ourselves to pull all the precious metals from the earth and puke all of the gases into the air. Yes. I think he understood that he was going into their habitat. He was going yeah. into their place and that he's just visiting and walking through it, rather than thinking, oh, this is mine to do whatever I want with. Mm -hmm. And not so much in the Fens, but certainly in all over England today, the land is, is very built up, mm -hmm. very industrial. And those more wild areas have been claimed by human activity. And so it's, it's that line between, well, are we crossing into someone else's home here? Mm -hmm. And I think there is that teaching with Fred, the character of Fred, who understands that he greets them with respect. And I think it can be as simple as that. If you have respect for something and you start off your relationship from that place, mm -hmm. then a lot less damage and violence is done. Yeah. As you mentioned how built up parts of England are and yet how the Fens, it sounds like in many ways are untouched or at least aspects of them. Yes. Well, they're very watery. Right. It's hard to build on them because, you know, it would just sink. Certainly, it's a lot more built up there with roads now than it would have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And there's many towns and villages there. And there's been a lot of drainage of the fens too with the big ditches, which are called dikes there. Mm -hmm. So it has been an altered landscape. But there's activity of people having lived there for thousands of years. It's actually the homeland. Well, Norfolk is the the land of the Iceni tribe, which is where Boudicca yes. was when she yes. led her revolt against the Romans. So it, it's that landscape. So there's, there's been people living there and working for a very long time. Mm. So it's very much been a landscape that's interacted with humans for thousands of years. Right. Well, it makes me very happy that we've invoked a heroine here because so much of Knotwork storytelling is about heroines' tales. And we also go love the folklore and, and Fred and those wretched stable boys too. But I'm just <laughs> deeply grateful to know that we've got sort of one of the patron heroines here to tell her story. 
And I love that she has a connection to Bogland. I hadn't made that connection before because just to speak for my own creative work and my own, you know, the land in which I've been rooted, I grew up in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. So I grew up on salt marshes. I grew up on a cranberry bog for several years when I was growing up. And I was actually just listening to Katie Holton, who works with the RD bog in Ireland. Do you know her work? I haven't heard of her, but that sounds great. You will adore her. Yeah. She's written some stunning books about trees and about, and she's done a lot of, she's an artist, she's done a lot of work with Oum, the, the Celtic tree alphabet. Right. Yeah. But I found her because my current novel is about bog bodies, about the, you know, the, the, whether the Druid sacrifice or whatever they ended up in the bogs has been really at the front of my fascination for several years. So just endlessly this weaving. And now I'm more and more curious about the bogs of East Anglia. Are they, they're more mark, like, I'm going to get, this is like, I'm a, okay, raising my hand as a bog <laughs> geek that I would like to understand this. And also, because I do feel like they're coming up in the collective consciousness as the value for wetlands and why we need them, knowing that there's such sinks for fossil fuel and that they need to stay in the ground and the carbon needs to stay there. So I'm going to just prepare our listeners to say, I swear this is for more than just Marisa is an aspiring bog queen. Can you tell <laughs> me more about what you know? <laughs> <laughs> I share your love of bogs. It's, you know, it's such a feature of different ecosystems in the Isles, where my dad's family's from in the Highlands of Scotland, very boggy up there too, parts of it. So in the in the fence, I'd say it's it's more watery, right? Mm. It's more like reeds and rushes. It's very watery. It's not the same as like a peat bog. Okay. So I don't. There have been many archaeological artifacts found. Many, many actually. It's a huge site for archaeology mm. because things have been preserved so well in that landscape. There's an excellent archaeologist called Francis Pryor who's done a lot of work excavating the Fens, and he even wrote a book called The Fens, which is one of my favorite books. And I'm not so sure about bodies having been found there, hmm. but certainly remains of villages, just so many examples of sacrifices that were given to the water, like metal that was deposited into the water, which is incredible, tells us so much. Right. about the way that they would have moved through the landscape too with different platforms having been built. So yeah, this tells us a lot about history, right. being able to excavate that landscape. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I can't help but think of all the different fiction that I've read set in these spaces. Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials series, he's written those more two recent novels about Lyra as a grown-up. But he has The Egyptians are are in all these watery spaces and there's definitely some scenes with the lights and I forget exactly what he calls oh, them in the books okay. but drawing from that same story well right right yes yeah yeah because they would have been such a big thing going on in the landscape the lights they were all over the place right so they would have been so much part of people's consciousness yeah especially before we started building roads more and draining the fens and just general building into the landscape, mm -hmm. they would have been very prevalent. Actually, one thing that was that kind of made me feel a little sad <laughs> was that when I was looking into the lights a little bit more, I found out that there is actually a scientific explanation for the lights now. And so 
I'm happy about science. I definitely don't want to knock science. I'm very grateful for science. But there's a part of me that feels when we have this very kind of rational explanation for these mysterious events that have been part of people's consciousness culturally for a long time, for me, there's a bit of grief in that because whenever you look up the lights now on Google or something, it will come up with the scientific explanation, which is that it's gases arising from the marsh. Some of them ignite upon contact with oxygen. Some of them are have a something similar to bioluminescence, so they give off, they emit light. And so that's what they are. And also because they're gases, they tend to move when you get close to them because it's that movement of air. Right. So... I, when I found out about that, yeah, I was like, well, it's good to know. Science is very valuable. But yeah, there's a part of me that carries a bit of grief around that because it takes away that relationship, I guess, or the way that people might have related to them. It changes it. Right, right. Yeah. I share that so deeply, sister. I completely understand. I actually keep a greeting card on my refrigerator that my own sister gave me years ago for my birthday that says, magic is everywhere if you don't understand science. <laughs> oh, that's very damning. I know. I'm like, okay, I feel very, very seen. Thank you very much. I'm going to keep this here as a reminder. Remind my daughters to do their biology and their chemistry homework and it's yeah. time. And also, what if it's actually the fairies? <laughs> because we interweave all of the realities right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I would challenge anybody who knows the science to go out on a dark night and walk through the marshes and yeah. see those lights and not feel that sense of the mystery, the mythic, even that, you know, that, that kind of awe-inspiring, a bit of fear, mm. a bit of excitement in coming into contact with something like that from nature, yeah. which at the core of it is still mysterious. It still is. Right. And we can still have that experience, I think. Right. Even if we have this more rational understanding. Yes. The both and perspective on the universe is what makes it so worth living and making yeah. art and discovering the past and discovering the interaction of molecules as well. Yes. <laughs> we need all of it. Yes. And of course, science just teaches us the more and more that we don't know. Right. And so... I guess they can go together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so as we close our conversation, I feel like there's a very important question I haven't asked you. Have you seen the lights and the wisps? And can you tell us about any of your experiences and seeing them yourself? I'm so sad to say that I have not seen the wisps. Yeah. yeah, that's. I feel sad saying that, but that's the truth. I haven't seen the wisps. I never went out walking in the fence by myself at night. Mm. I just never did that. I lived on the edge of the fence, so I wasn't right there. Right. Um, so, no, I didn't. And I live quite close to Cambridge, which is, it's a beautiful city with a lot of green space. Right. But it's still pretty built up. And I have, I mean, I saw a lot of mist right. <laughs> growing up, but but it's not the same. Yeah. But I think if you go out into the marshes, you, you can still see them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps we reframe that with you haven't seen them yet. 
And there's something really beautiful about how you can hold their story and hold their energy and transmit it to us, even though for you, it's still in the realm of the unseen. That actually makes it even more delightful in certain ways. Yes. Yes. I like that. Thank you. I'll I'll hold that with me. And maybe when I do get to see them, I'll have my my girls with me, my daughters. And so maybe I'll get to see them with them. They've been waiting for you and the perfect moment. Oh. <laughs> well, Robin, this conversation has been so delightful and remarkable and has covered so many remarkable bases. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I, I really appreciate the offer. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So this show will be coming out right in the autumn in our spookiest season, because I feel like this, this really speaks to that energy of late September into October. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got on offer, how people might be able to find you to learn more about your brilliant work? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your kind words. Yes. So I'm most active on Instagram and that's at sacred.earth.growth. I have, I run programs to connect with the animist traditions of the British Isles. I also have a membership program that will have started in August. So that is really about learning about the different sacred sites of the Isles. That's something I was really called to create. So each month we'll go in depth into a different sacred site of the Isles. Mm. So we'll have a bit of a, a history lesson or a sacred history lesson as I call it. And then we do do some embodied intuitive practice around it in order to really connect with the history Mm -hmm. in a way that actually brings it into our animus practice in today's world. Mm -hmm. So that's the main thing that I got going on. Yes. Brilliant. I will share all of those links in the show notes. And I'm so excited to keep journeying with you. And I hope that you'll come back with more stories in the future. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Notwork Podcast and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future. <laughs>